Hey, good morning. Welcome to our theological equipping class. This semester we have been studying uh, the doctrine of the church, what is known as ecclesiology, and today we're going to talk about marks of a healthy church. Now, before we get into this, uh, I want to warn you about two different errors that you can make in thinking about healthy versus not-so-healthy churches, okay? So last week we talked about what is a church, and we'll continue talking about that some. Today we're going to say, what happens when you already have an established church and you're wanting to assess whether or not it is healthy or not? What are these different marks that you can look for uh, in a healthy church? Now, the two errors you can make uh, are these. One, on the one hand, you might have a tendency to think that Parkway is the only game in town. That we try to be faithful, we try to teach the Bible, we try to do certain things well, and so we're the only ones that get it, and all the other churches don't get it. Not only is that arrogant, but it is not correct. There are other good, faithful churches in our area, there are other good, faithful churches uh, that we uh, need to be willing to work with, etc. Okay, so don't think that Parkway is the only show in town. Some of you, though, might err on the other side. You might think that just because people are getting saved at a church and just because that church is generally orthodox, therefore, it's great. They're doing good things. They're doing good gospel work because people are getting saved, and that's not necessarily true either. You can be a church that's orthodox and where God is gracious and so people still get saved and still be really, really unfaithful and be discipling people into certain things that are not good and not biblical. So a good example of this is the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, this letter goes out to seven churches, and of those seven churches, Jesus is mad at five of them. There are only two of them that don't receive rebuke, if I, uh, my memory serves me correctly. I believe it's uh, Philadelphia and uh, Smyrna. Uh, all the other ones get rebuked. In fact, Jesus gets so mad at them that he threatens to take away their church to take away their lampstand. So know that just because somebody gets saved at a church and just because they're generally orthodox, that does not mean that they're pleasing to God. They might be walking in all kinds of unfaithfulness, specifically in the book of Revelation. The two things that keep coming up with these unfaithful churches is that they tolerate false teachers and false doctrine and that they walk in sexual immorality. And so keep those two uh, warnings, those two extremes in mind as we go through this list, okay? What, now, what I have to do in talking about healthy churches is I need to contrast them with not-so-healthy churches, okay? I'm not trying to do that to, uh, to make us become really cynical or mad at other churches or something like that, but it is helpful to give both the positive and the negative so you can see marks of a healthy church and then also marks of unhealthy churches. But I need to give a clarifier here too before we get into our lesson. Just because a church is unhealthy in one area, that doesn't mean that the church is unhealthy overall, okay? So imagine a guy who's in great shape, he runs, he lifts weights, he eats well, but he has just a bad knee. He sustained a sports injury and he has a bad knee. Just because his knee is unhealthy, he's unhealthy in one area, that doesn't mean that he is generally unhealthy, okay? So when I say an unhealthy church doesn't have this type of church government, I don't mean that if your church government's off, your entire church is unhealthy. I just mean that you're a little bit unhealthy in one particular area. <clears throat> So with that in mind, uh, let's first talk about what you need to have a church at all, and then we'll have to work very quickly on what a healthy church looks like and some different indicators or some different marks of a healthy church. So let's first just ask this question, what do you need to have a church at all? Okay. Uh, the, within the Reformed tradition, the tradition in which we stand, there are several different answers to that question. If you are Calvin's successor in Geneva, a guy named Theodore Beza, or you are Francis Turretin, all right, uh, Francois 
Tur- what is it? Uh, Turretini is actually what the last name is uh, originally. Uh, he is a very famous, very meticulous Reformed thinker. Uh, those guys would say that there is one mark that you must have to even have a church at all, and that one mark is the correct preaching of the Word. Okay? If you do not have the correct preaching of the Word, you do not have a church. Okay? Mormons are not Christians, and they do not have a church because they do not have the correct preaching of the Word. They have a false view of God, a false view of Christ, a false view of the gospel, a false view on a bunch of things, false view on the Bible. I mean, it's, it is not Christian. A Jehovah's Witness, uh, Kingdom Hall, that is not a church, okay? That is a, uh, a false church, again, and there's no church there at all because there's not the correct preaching of the Word, Okay? Those kind of things, cults and these kind of things, are what Revelation would call a synagogue of Satan, where there are people claiming to know God but actually denying true doctrine. John Calvin would say that there are two things that you have to have to even have a church at all. You have to have the correct preaching of the Word and the correct practice of the sacraments, okay? That doesn't mean you can't vary on how you perform the sacraments. What it means is they must be Christian. They must be biblical, okay? And then later reformers, guys like Martin Booster, would say that there's actually three marks that you have to have to even have a church at all. You must have the correct preaching of the word, you must have uh, the, practice, uh, the correct practice of the sacraments, and church discipline. How about that? A lot of the reformers would say that if you grew up in a church that didn't do church discipline, you've never actually been in a church. You've been a part of a really cool big Bible study, but churches have to care about holiness and have to discipline their members, and if you're not doing that, you are not part of a church. So which of these marks are needed to even have a church at all? I think that Beza and Turretin are right. I think that the, there is one mark that you really have to have to have a church, and that's the correct preaching of the Word. Now listen to this, because if you have that one mark, you also have the correct practice of the sacraments, and you also have the correct practice of church discipline. Those two other things are implied in the first one. Hermann Bavink, a very famous Reformed uh, theologian, says this, All ministry in the church is a ministry of the Word. God gives His Word to the church, and the church accepts, preserves, administers, and teaches it. It confesses it before God, before one another, and before the world in word and deed. In the one mark of the Word, the others are included as further applications. Where God's Word is rightly preached, there also the sacrament is purely administered. See, there's the sacraments. The truth of God is confessed in line with the intent of the Spirit, and people's conduct is shaped accordingly. Notice the holiness and discipline as people's conduct is shaped. So I think that you need one true mark to even have a church at all. The, the correct gospel, the biblical gospel, the biblical view of the Trinitarian God, these kind of things. And if you have that, you have those other marks as well. Now, assuming that we have an Orthodox church, we have a historically Orthodox biblical Christian church, what things can make your church more or less healthy? I've got 12 of these to mention and not much time, so I can only spend a few minutes on each one. So we've got to go quickly. So here's the first one. Correct doctrine. Correct doctrine. If your doctrine's too far off, you're not a church at all. But let's assume that uh, you're orthodox, but you have differing views on church government or women in ministry or the spiritual gifts or something like that. Uh, Your church can be more or less pure in doctrine. Let me give you some biblical passages that command us to care about doctrine, that command us to love true doctrine. Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In Mark 7.7, Jesus says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So notice, there's some worship that Jesus does not like, and it's when you think of him wrongly. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
Romans 16.1, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. You might be saying, Zach, all those people that love theology, they cause divisions. Nope, that's not what this text says. And create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. The divisive person in the New Testament is the one who has false doctrine, not the one who is always talking and very concerned about true doctrine. Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children. What does it mean to be a theological child, a little infant who needs to grow up? It's someone who's tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of emotional feelings. Nope, that's not what the text says. It says my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. In context, it's theological knowledge. 1 Timothy 4.6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Titus 1.9, in giving the requirements of an elder, says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Notice that an elder not only has to uh, hold to correct doctrine, he has to teach it as it has been taught, okay? He has to teach it correctly. He can't just say, I believe the Bible and come up with some new weird interpretation. He has to teach it as Christians have historically understood it. So with that in mind, that we're to care about doctrine, we're to have pure doctrine, okay? Unhealthy churches or some marks of unhealth you might see in unhealthy churches are the following. When it comes to this topic, unhealthy churches have incorrect doctrine. Again, if they're off on major issues, they're not a church. If they're off on minor issues, they're just unhealthy. Have incorrect doctrine. Don't care about doctrine. That's a mark of an unhealthy church. Think that doctrine is bad or think that doctrine is divisive. That's unhealthy. Promote head over heart. I'm sorry, the other way around. Promote heart over head. It's bad to promote head over heart. You want both. But uh, unhealthy churches promote heart over head, typically, when it comes to doctrine. Unhealthy churches promote anti-intellectualism. Think that a relationship with God is based on feelings or think that the church should primarily be about social work instead of theology. Those are all marks of spiritual unhealth within a church. Here's the second one. Proper use of the sacraments. This is the the second uh, kind of mark that we're doing of a healthy church. Proper use of the sacraments or ordinances. You can use either term. We have a tendency to think that the term sacraments is Catholic. It's not. The Reformers use it all the time. Sacraments and ordinances are the same thing. I don't care which term you use. Now, we believe, being a Protestant church, that in Scripture there are only two sacraments. There are only two of these ordinances instituted by Christ that we are to continue on today. Uh, One is baptism and the other is communion. Okay? But in uh, church history, within Roman Catholicism, you actually have several sacraments. Okay? You have seven of them. Baptism, communion, or what's called partaking of the Eucharist. Uh, in Roman Catholicism, you might have heard the phrase mass used. Mass, does not, mass is not just for communion. Mass is the church service, which includes preaching and then partaking of communion or uh, the Eucharist. The third one is penance, confirmation, Marriage is a sacrament if you are a lay person. Holy orders, your uh, kind of ordination to become a priest uh, is a, a sacrament if you are Roman Catholic and you are clergy. And then extreme or what is known as final unction, kind of this final absolution of sin, this final kind of prayer as you're about to die before you enter the next world, okay? Now, we would hold that there are only two. I'm just giving you that for uh, background. 
But uh, in these two sacraments of baptism and communion, we should seek to apply those biblically. We should follow what the Bible says about those. We should believe what the Bible says about those. We're going to have some entire lessons coming up on baptism, on communion. In fact, on almost every topic that we're going over today, we have an individual lesson that's coming down uh, this, uh, this semester, and so we don't have enough time to spend uh, uh, really fleshing these things out today. But I will give you marks of unhealthy churches when it comes to the sacraments. Unhealthy churches have an incorrect view of baptism, have an incorrect view of communion, do not guard baptism or the Lord's table from those who should not partake of them, treat the ordinances as unimportant. Maybe you've been a part of a church and it just doesn't really matter. We'll take communion once a year. If you get around to baptism eventually, great, but it doesn't really matter. That is a mark of an unhealthy church. Unhealthy churches rarely take communion, think that the sacraments justify you. Maybe you grew up in a church where uh, instead of being justified by faith in Christ alone, you thought that baptism justified you or communion justified you or something like that. Unhealthy churches also have a tendency to practice the ordinances in an unbiblical way, okay? Now, the third one, the third mark, right use of church discipline. The third mark, again, of a healthy church. So, so far we've had correct doctrine as a mark of a healthy church, proper use of the sacraments, and now here's a third one, right use of church discipline. Let's look at some biblical passages. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the ecclesia the gathered assembly, the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning as one outside of the covenant. Not as a lost person, lost people you're to receive in, you're to eat with, you're to have them in your church service, but you're to treat them as those outside of the covenant. Uh, Treat them in a sense even worse than a lost person because they're not merely a goat, they are a wolf. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, if you want to read more about uh, church discipline. Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, as then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Notice that the Bible actually tells us to judge one another. The kind of judging the Bible forbids is hypocritical judging. We are to tell one another when we're doing something that's wrong. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and then 14 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Notice there's this idea of having nothing to do with them if they're walking in disobedience to the apostles' commands, okay? Titus 3, 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Okay? So you see multiple commands, at least four here, and there are other ones implied throughout the Old and the New Testament, that if somebody is in unrepentant sin, 
Not just they're struggling or that they're fighting their sin. They're an unrepentant sin, and you keep warning them, and you keep warning them, and several people warn them, and the whole church warns them. Eventually, you are to remove them from fellowship. So what then does it look like to be an unhealthy church? If we're looking at healthy churches and we need to contrast them, what does it look like to be an unhealthy church in this area? Well, unhealthy churches think that church discipline is mean, or they think that church discipline is unloving. Unhealthy churches don't follow the steps of Matthew 18. They don't tell the issue to the whole church when someone is unrepentant. They have a tendency only to have the leadership of the church deal with it. An unhealthy church doesn't fully remove the person from all the benefits of the church. So what some churches will do is they'll say, you can't take communion, but you can have 99% of everything else Christians get, and so there's no actual sting to their discipline. These texts are clear. Have nothing to do with them. Do not eat with them. Purge them from among you. Hand them over to Satan. It could not be clear that you are to shun them. Okay? Unhealthy churches continue to fellowship with a person who has been removed from fellowship. They discipline people for preferences instead of actual sins. Unhealthy churches take too long before excommunicating someone or excommunicate someone too quickly. Unhealthy churches practice it for some sins but not others. Unhealthy churches don't teach their congregations about discipline before they do it. They just do it and nobody knows what's going on. They don't accept a person back after they've shown repentance or they don't practice discipline at all. Those are some unhealthy things. Here's another healthy thing, the fourth one here, as we go through these 12 different uh, uh, healthy marks here of a, uh, of a biblical and faithful church, okay? Biblical preaching. Accurate, accurate, exegetical preaching, okay? So what do I mean by this? Let, let me just say it this way. There are several different ways to preach. There are several different ways to teach the Bible, and uh, those other ways are not bad or wrong. So what some people do is they'll take one little short verse, and they'll have the entire sermon just be about that verse, okay? Jonathan Edwards does that. The most famous sermon to ever come out of North America is by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and the entire sermon is based on one little verse, their foot shall slip in due time. And out of that, he, he draws so many implications in this big theological view of God that you're under the wrath of God and he holds you over the fire like you would hold a spider on a web. But then at the end of the sermon, if you'll simply turn to Christ, that God will hold your hand and walk with you uh, along the way in this beautiful imagery of uh, redemption and these kind of things. And he just does it out of one verse, right? Other types of preaching, there's what's known as topical preaching. This is where, instead of just working line by line through a text, you preach on a topic, and you see what the Bible has to say all over the place on that topic. Most, if not all, of Charles Spurgeon's sermons were topical sermons. The the, the great Baptist prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, uh, did almost only topical sermons, okay? So those are not bad, but again, they can be misused. People have a tendency to, to twist those topics and make the text say what they want to say to fit within their topic, and so you just have to be careful, careful. Some people preach about issues going on in culture and use the Bible to proof text it. That's not okay. You see a lot of that, especially today. Some people read a text and then just talk about the main issue of the text. So they read a text line by line, and if that text is about, you know, marriage, then they just talk randomly about marriage for the rest of the sermon. Now, the the type of preaching that most infuriates me is a type of preaching that looks like expository preaching, but it's not really. Okay? It's kind of, a expository, it's kind of a, an expository wolf in sheep's clothing, if you want to say it that way. It's where a pastor will read a text line by line, but he'll talk about the text or something in the text the way he wants to talk about it. Okay? 
So he's reading it line by line. So you think he's being biblical, but as he's reading it, he then talks about the text the way he wants to talk about it. That is theological prostitution. That is you trying to say what you want to say and trying to get divine warrant to back you up, okay? That is not what I think is the best type of preaching, which is what is known as expository preaching. Expository preaching is where you read a text line by line, but then you talk about the text the way the text wants to be talked about. You talk about it in context. You explain what's originally going on to the original audience before you try to apply it to today. It takes a lot of work because you don't get to say what you want to say. You have to say what the text is saying. The point of the text and the points or I'd rather say the points of the text, plural, and the points of your sermon should be the same. So what is expository preaching? I'll give you a little definition here. It's where a pastor should read the text line by line and then talk about the text the way the text wants to be talked about. The points of the sermon should be the points of the text. The pastor should explain the text in its original context, prove that he has correctly interpreted it by making arguments from the text, and then explain how we should apply the passage today. Okay? Now, we're going to have a whole lesson on what is biblical preaching. We'll talk about that uh, in a few weeks, but uh, I want to give you one interesting example of this here. Is there an example of expository preaching in the Bible? There is in Nehemiah 8, 7 through 10. Let me, let me read this to you. <clears throat> the leaders here have gathered the people, and here's what the text says. The leaders, which is implied here, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Now, look at this next line. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So notice they're reading it, and as they're reading it, they're explaining it. They're expositing it, okay? And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay? So notice what's happening here. This is, this is what should happen biblically in preaching. Number one, they read God's word. Number two, as they're reading God's word, they're giving the sense of it. Meaning they're explaining it in its original context so people can understand it. Number three, people are convicted of their sin. That should always be happening in preaching, okay? When you leave a sermon, there should be something in the sermon that made you mad at you, mad at God, mad at the preacher, or mad at all three, okay? That's, that should happen. God's word will often cut us before it heals us. It will often offend us before it encourages us. But then look at this last part. Instead of wallowing in their shame, the people should rejoice in a renewed relationship with God. So you read the word, you explain the word, people are convicted by the word, and then there's repentance, and repentance brings about a renewed relationship with God, and then there shouldn't be any more weeping or sorrow or feeling awful, there should be rejoicing. There should be joy. You should go out, and according to this text, eat delicious meat, have delicious wine, and worship God in joy. That is the result of biblical preaching. Good biblical preaching finds Christ in every text and also teaches all of God's word. Okay? So if that's what a healthy a healthy sermon looks like, a healthy church when it comes to the uh, idea of preaching looks like. What are, are some marks of unhealthy churches or some marks of spiritual sickness? Well, unhealthy churches don't preach the gospel or they don't preach everything the Bible teaches. They have a tendency to stay away from texts that aren't quite as uh, popular right now in culture. They stay away from certain texts. Unhealthy churches, listen to this one, apologize or even seem ashamed of what they preach. 
You ever heard somebody do that where they, uh, they preach something that's true and biblical and then they come back at some future time and they apologize for it because people are offended by it, not because what they actually said what was wrong. You should not be ashamed of God's word. If you mispreach it, apologize. If you preach it and it just offends people because the Bible does that, you should not apologize for that. God, God doesn't apologize for that. He's not ashamed of his word, so you should not be as either. Unhealthy churches preach primarily about people's practical and uh, felt needs. Unhealthy churches use the pulpit to push political or social agendas, make preaching boring, sell out by doing what's kitschy instead of what's faithful, or make preaching shallow and watered down. Okay? Here's the fifth one. We got we to go a little faster here. <laughs> Running out of time. Here's a mark of a, another mark of a healthy church. Uh, the fifth one here, clear gospel proclamation. This one is really important. Does your church teach the message of the kingdom of God? And does it teach salvation from our sins through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity who is co-equal with God, co-eternal with God, the exact same substance with God, though a distinct person from the Father and the Spirit? Does your, does your church teach that? The gospel is this. The gospel is the good news that the God of Israel is putting the sin-scarred world back to rights by reestablishing his rule and reign, i.e. his kingdom, that's what the Bible means when it says kingdom of God, over the world. How does God do that? Through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and coronation of his eternal son, Jesus the Messiah, and by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, with the purpose of stomping out all that is evil and redeeming sinful humanity by grace unto the glory of the triune God. That is the gospel. Does your church hit that? Everything is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We want to love Jesus, worship Jesus, trust in Jesus, repent uh, to Jesus, ask Jesus for help. That's what we want to do. That's what Christianity is about. We have destroyed everything. We have ruined it. We have rebelled against God. So the second person of the Trinity has come down while remaining God and has taken on true humanity, has truly become human while remaining God to redeem us, to live the life we should have lived to die on a cross which we deserve for our sin against God and to be resurrected and reign and rule over everything. Does your church focus on that? And does your church focus on the fact that the way you receive Christ is just through grace? It's by grace through faith. Does your church preach grace or does it just give you a list of do's and don'ts? Well, if that's what a mark of a healthy church, what uh, do unhealthy churches do in this area? Well, here's some things that an unhealthy church will do. Unhealthy churches don't preach Jesus. They use jargon that nobody understands. If you go up to a lost person and say, you need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, that means nothing to them. That's like this weird Christianese. Your job is to explain the Bible, not just parrot weird phrases that you have heard that would make no sense to a lost person. You have to contextualize. Unhealthy churches preach legalism instead of grace. They focus on social justice more than the gospel. They don't preach the full gospel. They just preach little elements of how you can be saved, but they don't talk about how it affects the rest of your life. Unhealthy churches just focus on personal salvation or don't apply the gospel to all of life's situations, okay? Next, another mark of a healthy church is this, healthy church membership. Again, we're gonna have a whole lesson on this one, okay? Now, let's be clear. The Bible does not give an explicit command that goes something like this. Thou shalt be an official church member by going through a membership class and signing a membership covenant, okay? The Bible doesn't say that. So then what some people conclude is because there's not this direct command that thou must do this formal process called membership, they assume that there's no such thing as church membership in the Bible. That's ridiculous, okay? Church membership and the concept of having an in-group 
and an outgroup of a local church so that the elders know who that they're shepherding and these kind of things is constantly through the New Testament. Okay, let me give you a few things here. First of all, 1 Corinthians 12 does use the term members. It says we are members of the same body. That's where we get that uh, idea, okay? The early church had membership roles, okay? They had, they had roles for a lot of things, a list of widows. They had a list of who were their, their members were. In fact, when certain church leaders were persecuted by uh, Rome, one of the things that uh, the Romans would try to do is to get them to hand over copies of the Scripture and to hand over their membership roles. In fact, the word traitor, tratiatores, means to hand over. Okay, that's what these people were doing. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, that you are to submit to elders, which assumes that you have local elders to whom you are accountable. Okay? So when the Bible says submit to elders, that means all elders? Does that mean that there's some uh, church over in China and you're supposed to be submitting to their elders right now? No, it assumes that you submit to local elders because it assumes that you belong to a body locally. 1 Peter 5.2 tells elders to shepherd the, quote, flock, which assumes they know who their flock is. Okay? If we as elders have to give an account, an account before God for you, we need to know who you are. We need to know who we're accountable to. I'm not accountable to some random guy off in, uh, you know, I don't know, Eastern Europe or something that I've never met. I'm accountable for you guys because y'all are the flock. And then the practice of church discipline in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, listen to this, assumes that there is an in-group, i.e. members, from which you can remove somebody. How do you do church discipline and kick someone out of the church if you don't know who the church is, Okay. So healthy church membership is a mark of a good church, of a faithful biblical church. If that's the case, how do we contrast that with uh, spiritual unhealth in this area? Well, unhealthy churches don't have church membership, don't have a process whereby they really know their members, make it too easy to join, make it too difficult to join, don't really make sure the people joining the church are saved, don't make sure the people joining the church understand what they are committing to, don't have elders that are accountable to their people, give more of their care to outsiders than members, or, and listen to this last one, unhealthy churches care more about their brand, reputation, or ministry to outsiders than discipling their own members, okay? Let's move on to the next mark of a healthy church, next indicator of a faithful church, biblical church officers. Again, we're going to have a whole lesson on this, so I won't be talking uh, uh, much about it, but essentially there are two main church office, offices today, <laughs> elders and deacons, okay? Elders are a spiritual body, they are the governing body. They are a body that does spiritual things, that does theological things. They teach. They guard against false doctrine. They uh, protect from wolves. They disciple, etc. Deacons are not a governing body. They are a serving body. They do things like finances, waiting tables, visiting people in the hospital, taking care of the poor. A lot of these uh, kind of issues, those are done by deacons. So I'll give you a little statement out of Parkway's statement of faith here. <clears throat> The ascended Christ has given the enduring offices of elders and deacons for the equipping of Christ's body so that it might mature and grow. Elders are qualified men charged to shepherd the church in oversight and teaching, while deacons are qualified servants who help with the physical administration of the ministry of the body. Okay? So if that's healthy for a church to have biblical church government, and again, we'll, we'll have a whole lesson on church government and church officers, we'll have both, <coughs> excuse me, uh, then here's what an unhealthy church looks like. Unhealthy churches don't have a plurality of elders, have elders that don't meet the requirements given in Scripture, have deacons who act like elders, have female elders. Listen to this next one. Have elders who have authority over other elders. Okay, so some churches, people are elders, but another elder is like their boss. That's called an archbishop or something. Okay, that, is not, that defeats the whole purpose of having a plurality of elders. You need that flatness across the elders so that they can really make decisions together in a plurality. Unhealthy churches have elders who don't know their people, 
have one guy who practically functions as the leader over the other elders in authority. Don't have deacons at all. Have deacons who don't meet the biblical requirements. Have people functioning as elders without that title. Have people with the title of elder who don't fulfill that function. Don't have any church government or have their members democratically vote on everything. Okay? There should be a checks and balances between leadership and laity, but that doesn't mean that the church is American and you uh, democratically try to vote on every issue. Another uh, indicator of a healthy church, a church that's doing well spiritually, is their view of evangelism and missions. Healthy churches share their faith both locally and abroad, okay? Now, God has gifted certain people to be especially equipped to share their faith. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, okay? The church should care about sending out missionaries and locally engaging the lost, do you love that? Do you care about that? Do you want to see lost people saved? Do you play any part in trying to contribute to these things? Okay? They are, uh, or this is a mark of a, uh, of a healthy church. Again, we're going to have a whole lesson on evangelism. We'll talk more about this later. But uh, let's contrast it with unhealthy churches. On this issue, unhealthy churches don't share their faith, don't know how to share their faith, lack social skills needed to engage those around them. Think about that. <clears throat> Uh, if you are really godly, but you lack some social skill, it's going to be hard for you to share your faith. And so you need to get other people around you who can help guide you and help coach you and help work through those things. Unhealthy churches don't understand the culture in which they are ministering. Don't continue to care for churches after a new church is planted. Don't care about missions. Only focus on missions at the expense of making disciples in the local assembly. Only focus on evangelism at the expense of discipleship. Think it is only the pastors who should do evangelism or, listen to this last one, use outdated methods of evangelism and missions. You cannot just go up to somebody on the street today like it's the 1950s. That's not how people work today. I'm not saying that God doesn't still use it. I'm just saying it's not what's best. Missions has changed quite a bit. You don't just send somebody from another culture to live for 30 years in one culture and to try to spend all this time learning the language. It's better to train up indigenous pastors. We have air travel. We have videos where we can teach theology and Skype with pastors. So the way that missions and evangelism is done has to change with the culture, not the message the gospel doesn't change. The wrapping paper that you put the gospel in, though, does, okay? Another mark of a healthy church is discipleship, okay? Discipleship. Now, let me say this because this is something I get on a soapbox about. The Great Commission is not this. It is not make shallow converts of all nations, making sure at least they get saved, but they never really mature or are discipled or can make more disciples. That's how most churches Think of the Great Commission. Well, we got them saved. We got them in the door. That's not what God's most concerned about. God apparently isn't about numbers because the road is wide, which leads to destruction, and most people are on it. The road is narrow that leads to life, and only a few will find it, okay? The Great Commission is to make full-blown disciples, and part of these, this Great Commission is teaching them to observe the whole Bible, teaching them to observe all that God has commanded. Think about how long that takes to do. It takes a lifetime. So yes and amen to evangelism, but that's not the goal. Evangelism is one step so that you can actually get to the goal, which is glorifying God by making disciples, okay? Churches should care about actually growing people and not just growing their numbers. Unhealthy churches don't make disciples. Relegate discipleship to just one venue. Don't walk with each other personally. Don't confess sin. Focus more on evangelism than discipleship. 
Don't feed the people good theology. Don't spend enough time hanging out with people to actually disciple them and focus more on numbers and growth than depth and quality. If you will go deep first, if you will focus on quality first, you will also go wide. You will also reach more people. If you try to go wide first, you will plateau. You will plateau, okay? Next, another mark of a healthy church, holiness. Healthy churches have members who walk in radical holiness. Healthy churches have people that so are overwhelmed by the mercy and love and grace of God that it causes them to want to walk in obedience, not to earn God's favor, but because they already have it. This includes spiritual disciplines, okay? Things like Bible study and prayer and service. This includes putting evil desires to death, putting them to death. You can't just manage your sin. You can't take this idol, this thing that controls your life, your biggest fear, this thing you're thinking about more than God, this thing you love more than God, you can't just take your idol and put it in a closet. You have to smash your idol, and smashing an idol takes a lot of work, especially if your, your idol's made of metal. You have to keep hitting it and hitting it and hitting it and hitting it, and your hands are bloody, and it hurts, and it's awful, and it might take you in your, t- your entire life, but it's a mark of holiness to always be fighting your sin. Holiness does not mean that you withdraw from the world or never have non-sinful fun. That would actually be legalism, which is sinful. Uh, and we do not strive to be holy for salvation. We strive for holiness because we already have salvation. God really, though, cares about holiness, okay? Let me ask you this, especially if you're a guy and you're married. Do you really care that your wife is faithful to you? You do, right? Well, guess what? Christ super cares that his church is faithful, his bride is faithful. He's not okay with unholiness, with unrighteousness. Revelation 3, 1 through 3, it says this, and to the angel of the church of Sardis, the church in Sardis, right, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Repent, walk in holiness, or... God will shut down the church, that he will remove that church's lampstand, that local church. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is a mark of a healthy church. So let's contrast that with uh, spiritual unhealth in this area. What then do unhealthy churches look like when it comes to holiness? Unhealthy churches don't care about holiness, think that holiness equals withdrawing from society or culture, partake in things the Bible says are actually sinful, try to conquer sin apart from the gospel, try to clean themselves up before coming to Christ, assume only church leaders have to be holy, don't practice church discipline, focus only on actions and not the underlying motivations, or forbid things that the Bible allows. Those are marks of spiritual unhealth. Number 11, love and care for others. This is a mark of a healthy church. This includes loving Christians, 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Brother there means fellow Christian. So if you've ever met somebody who's been in church their whole life and they, they seem really religious and they say they love God, but they just don't seem to love other Christians. They're stodgy, you say hi, they don't say hi, you smile, they don't smile, they just seem to not like people. The Bible's going to say they might not actually be a Christian, but rather belong to the devil. Let that be convicting to you. One of the marks of someone who's righteous is that they love other Christians. When you find out someone isn't a Christian, it should rejoice your heart, okay? But it also means that we are to love non-Christians, and we're to care for the poor generally. 
James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world, okay? The church's main mission is not to care for the poor, but it is an implication of the gospel and therefore a secondary objective, okay? So I don't know if you know this or not, there's kind of a big debate right now in evangelicalism and it's this question, is social justice a gospel issue? That's how people will phrase it. Let me just break down that question. First of all, social justice is not the same thing as biblical justice. Social justice is where you try to bring about redemption in people's lives apart from Jesus. You just try to do it politically and socially. It lasts for one generation and then it goes away because it has no foundation. Social justice is not biblical justice, okay? Uh, But the question's also confusing. When they say, is it a gospel issue, it depends on what you mean. Do you mean, is it an implication of the gospel so that the gospel affects people's lives practically? Sure. Do you mean, is it part of the saving content that you must believe to be saved of the gospel? No way, okay? So let me just give you how Christians should think about social work. Let me just tell you what we should think about social work because the Bible actually speaks to this. It does it in Acts 6. In Acts 6, there are these women who don't have any food, Hellenistic Jewish widows who are not having food. And they come and they want food and they ask the disciples for food, okay? Now listen to what the disciples say. This is amazing. They say, We don't have time to give you food. We're busy doing theology things. We're busy praying. We're busy preaching the word. We're busy studying the Bible. That's amazing that the apostles think that teaching the Bible, teaching the gospel is more important than people not eating, okay? But they don't just leave it there. The congregation selects these men to help care for these women so that they're still being cared for. So notice that the church is to do both theology and social work But in that order, you cannot switch the order. Theology is primary. Theology is the more important thing. And then others within the church do social work, caring for the poor, making sure people have food, et cetera, et cetera. So the job of the pastors, elders, whatever, is to teach. The job of the Christians in the church is to, to the extent that they are able, help push back what is evil in the world. But it has to go in that order. If you're a church that just preaches the gospel and nobody does anything to help anybody, then you're just like somebody who says, go, be warmed and well-fed. Conversely, though, that if you're somebody who your focus is more on social work, you're just helping a lot of people on their way to hell, and that's not that helpful, okay? And so, yes, we love and care for others, and we help the poor, but notice that helping others is an implication of the gospel. It's not the gospel itself. So with that in mind, what then does it look like to have unhealthy churches in this area? Unhealthy churches don't really love their members. They allow for unreconciled division in their churches. They do not help their members in need. They have members who do not love lost people. They create an us versus them mentality towards the lost. They care for the lost at the expense of caring for their members. They have members who enable those who have become poor due to continued unrighteous actions. You are not to enable somebody in their sin. That is not loving, by the way. Unhealthy churches spend all their time focusing on the the poor or conversely spend none of their time focusing on the poor. Unhealthy churches sacrifice teaching the Bible for acts of mercy or or they confuse the role of the state in caring for the poor slash immigrant with the role of the church. Okay, we'll talk more about this when we talk about Christians and politics later this semester. Lastly, this little 12th mark, if you will, of a healthy church, a consistent Christian worldview. A consistent Christian worldview. Is Christianity to you just your get-out-of-hell-free card and you're saved and it doesn't affect anything else? Or do you understand it is part of a much larger worldview? Everything is affected by your Christianity. 
Your philosophy, your politics, everything is affected by your Christianity, okay? Christianity is much more than just getting saved. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. I want to read this again. We read it uh, in talking about doctrine. It says this. We destroy arguments. Do you do that, by the way? Do you see that as a Christian thing? When somebody puts forward a bad argument that's unbiblical, that you shut it down? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Part of the Christian walk is submitting everything to Christ, submitting everything to his commands in Scripture, submitting everything to what is historically Christian, okay? It is very much a thinking thing. Christianity involves experience, but it's not primarily experiential. It's primarily doctrinal. It is about propositions and facts and building arguments and making a case, okay? It is is very absolute. It's absolutely right and true, and contrary positions are therefore false and should be repented of. You are not allowed to hold an actual contradiction. If you hold an actual contradiction, it means that you are wrong in at least one of those two propositions, okay? I meet a lot of people where I say, well, if you hold this, that's inconsistent with this other thing you hold, and they're like, yeah. They don't realize one of those two, at least, if not both, have to be wrong, has to be sinful to teach and believe and support one of those views. You have to have a consistent Christian worldview. Do you seek to align all your thoughts with Scripture? Is your view of sex and gender, does it line up with Scripture? Does it line up with what Scripture says about sex and gender? What about marriage? Do you know what the Bible says about marriage? Have you read it? Do your thoughts about marriage line up with the Bible? What about parenting, including discipline? Yes, there are different ways that you can discipline your kids, but I will give you a little hint here. The Bible only explicitly mentions one, and it mentions it like 1,900 times. So you might want to know what that one is, the way that it tells you how to discipline your kids might be, okay? What about work? Do you know what the Bible says about work? Do you know how to glorify God in your job, or is it just this thing you do until you can get to the weekend? What about your hobbies? Are your hobbies submitted to God? What about your politics? Are your politics and your political views submitted to Scripture? Do you vote your values? Well, Zach, I don't want to read my values on to somebody else. Why not if you believe they're true? How unchristian and evil would that be to not give people God's word and what's best if you really believe it's God's word and what's best? Why wouldn't you want to do that? Again, we'll talk more about that when we get into politics. Your money. Is your money submitted to God? What does the Bible say about money? What about social issues? What about issues that pop up in our culture? Have you read the parts of the Old Testament that deal with what is and is not justice? What is and is not a fair trial? What is and is not sexual assault? What, have you read it? Do you know? What about philosophical positions? Do you hold philosophical positions that are inconsistent with Scripture? Your view of metaphysics or ethics or knowledge or uh, whatever it might be. Is it inconsistent with what the Bible says? A consistent Christian worldview is part of a healthy church. So contrasting that, unhealthy churches hold positions on marriage, sex, divorce, or remarriage that are not biblical, have members who vote for unchristian positions, being pro-choice, pro-gay marriage, anti-free speech, etc., agree with every new fad or social issue. That's a mark of unhealth. It's being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine as it comes up. Unhealthy churches try to bring about justice without the gospel, focus on people and their experiences instead of God and His Word, don't view work as a form of worship, unhealthy churches don't apply the Bible to every area of life, unhealthy churches hold the same worldview as lost people or hold positions that are logically inconsistent with other positions they hold, okay? Now, there will be a tendency, perhaps hearing this lesson, to think that it is somehow bad or sinful to compare churches to other churches. You shouldn't think that way. That's okay to do. We're wanting to be faithful. 
But you might err on the other side, and you might think only a few churches are getting it right. That's not true either. The, the, the truth is somewhere, in this case, in the middle. I think most evangelical churches are orthodox and people do get saved, but most of them are not as pleasing to God as they could be. Conversely, we're not the only show in town. There are other good churches. There are other good churches here in McKinney. And here's something that you need to hear. We can grow in these areas as well, okay? We can grow in these areas as well. Christ is faithful. His bride is often very unfaithful. When you receive Christ, though, you have to also receive the church. You have to receive his bride, And so just because she's broken and she will hurt you and she's not like she should be, you don't get to be mad at her or hate her, okay? Instead, we have to work on these areas. I think that we can grow in loving others. I think we can grow in helping the poor. I think we can grow in evangelism. There are a lot of these areas where I think that we can grow. Any place where we have been faithful, it is only due to God's grace. It's not because we're smart. It's not because we do it. It's just because God has been gracious to broken sinners. May he do so more and more. Let's pray, and uh, then we will be done. And Jeff can come up to help with uh, some Q&A questions. Almighty God, we thank you for this, uh, this lesson and uh, just ask that you would bless it. I pray that we would be found faithful, that uh, we might never receive a letter from you, uh, metaphorically speaking, of how we have become uh, lukewarm and we're useless or we've tolerated false teachers or we've walked in sexual immorality and tolerated that woman Jezebel, as uh, Revelation would say, but rather we would be a faithful church. We would be a church that... Uh, that uh, delights you. And so we just ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.